Well, I'm excited for today um, because we, in a way, continue our Ephesians study. And in a way, we're going to just break away for a little bit. And the reason is because we're going to look at what Paul says in Ephesians and in Colossians about uh, a gospel center family. Um, but to do that, we're going to take a few weeks and go back to the foundation of family uh, back in Genesis. And we're going to see what its foundation is and what its ultimate purpose is over the next couple of weeks. And so if you want to get your Bible and if you don't have one, you can lift your hand up. Uh, we don't have as much up on the screen today as we normally do, uh, but you can turn uh, to a pretty easy book to get to Genesis uh, which means beginning, and it's right up there in the beginning. So uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is where we're going to be at today. We won't be reading the whole uh, set of chapters. But there, Was that my cup, or did you just... You're so nice. Oh, yeah. It's, what's this floaty? Thanks, Mark. Yet another reason you don't want to go to their home group. Floaties in the water. Come to mine. All right. Sorry, Casey. So, uh, so we're looking at the gospel-centered family, and just to go over, just in a nutshell, the gospel or the good news. First of all, God created. God created, and man walked with God, had fellowship with God, worshipped God in relationship with God, and there was shalom. There was peace. Then the bad news Man rebelled and fell short of God's glory and was separated from that intimate relationship with him. Death was the result. And while death prevailed, man was enmity with God. He was at war and was war with God. But while we were at war with God, Christ died for our sins. Before the foundation of the world, God had a plan of calling and adopting. He began to draw man and convict man by the Holy Spirit. So that if man by faith believes in the redemptive work of Jesus, applying Christ's work and atonement from the cross to his life, there will be forgiveness of sins and man will be saved. Then... Shalom is restored. Man once again can walk in relationship with God, worshiping God. God is glorified. Shalom is restored through the sanctifying work and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as we look at the gospel-centered family, an aim that we have in this series, it's much different than probably other series you've been a part of or books that you can even buy from a Christian bookstore Our aim is to kill the idea that your works save marriage and family. That works save, period. Galatians chapter 3 verse 3 tells us, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, now you're going to try to be made perfect by the flesh? It's foolish. And we want to own in this series that it'll all be by grace. It'll all be by grace. Anything good will be by God's grace. A question for you. If the world designed marriage, or if you could design the perfect marriage, what would it look like? Maybe you'd say, oh man, it would just finally be about just me being happy. I deserve that, being happy. It's about me getting what I need. I just, I really need this. Oh man, since I was a kid or a little girl or a little boy, I've had this American dream out there. And you know, to get that dream, you've got to have that family. A boy, a girl, a dog, a white picket fence, and all the toys parked in the driveway. You know, if I could design the perfect marriage, I would design that I would just be provided for and I would live in security. I would be protected I could have a family. And the truth is, if you've lived life at all, these are very unrealistic expectations. Marriage is for our holiness. 
Marriage is for our sanctification. When two sinners marry, they're face to face with both theirs and the other person's depravity. There's going to be a whole lot of confrontation, a whole lot of confession, a whole lot of repentance, much forgiveness, and much restoration. We're going to see, especially next week, that marriage is for worship. Marriage is for worship. John Piper said, what kind of relationship is this? How are these two people held together? Can they walk away from this relationship? Can they go from spouse to spouse? Is this relationship rooted in romance, sexual desire, need for companionship, cultural convenience? What is this? What holds it together? Next week's title is actually the tie that binds. What's the tie that binds? Ultimately, it's God's glory. Ultimately, it's about worship. We live in a culture of people who diminish the family on one hand. And on the other hand, we live in a culture of people who make an absolute idol out of a family. And Lord, we want you to show us family from your perspective And hopefully you'll go and join me in bowing the knee before the word of God, letting the Lord give us right perspective on a gospel-centered family and let him shatter images that are less than what he has intended. Fifteen years ago, this July, I spoke these words to Lindsay. I, Rory, believe that you, Lindsay, are the one God chose for me to be my wife. In the name of Jesus, I vow to love you with a self-sacrificing love, to place your needs above my own and in every way possible, provide for your spiritual, your emotional, and your physical needs before my own. I vow to keep you first in my prayers, first in my heart, first in my life, and to keep myself for you alone as long as we both shall live. I'm really trying to hold back a laugh as I read that. (laughs) Oh my goodness, because the more I live out marriage and the more I live out the life of a pastor in counseling people pre and post marriage, you realize that's a bunch of hogwash. There's no way. Now, good intentions and biblical things, but holy moly, if you just stand on that, you are vowing, you got no hope. You've got no hope. And so we want to go into remembering our vows, remembering our covenant with what are the biblical realisms that God's calling us to? And then what's the motivation behind it that we see in the gospel of Jesus? And then is there any power in it? And we see that that is by walking in the spirit as we'll come full circle back to Ephesians chapter 5. Lindsay and I didn't have much of a clue as to what those vows meant. How can anyone, really? (laughs) We did the required six weeks of pre-marriage counseling with all the books and audio studies and meetings. The one on sex was the first one we read and listened to. As one writer said, it's a moment of unparalleled joy, this pre-marriage counseling. A man wrote in the 1600s, his name was Desiderius Erasmus, What is more sweet than to live with her with whom you are united in body and soul, who talks with you in secret affection, to whom you've committed all of your faith and all of your fortune? What in all nature is lovelier? Nothing is more safe, felicitous, tranquil, pleasant, and lovable than marriage. I wasn't going to laugh there. That's actually pretty sweet. (laughs) Some of you have been married longer than me. A dear friend of ours that pastors in Portland and is a a professor at Western Theological Seminary, he just instructed me so much in this. He said, all couples I've counseled are like counseling the mentally insane. (laughs) They are characterized with a radical inability to grasp reality. We'll never argue about sex, money, the in-laws. We'll never. And then we pledged till death do us part. No laughing there. (laughs) 
He then goes on to say naivety is now reality that is beaten out on the anvil of human experience. The school of hard knocks, amen. Tim Savage, a helpful book and helpful source in this series, said, Once the ceremony is over, rather than advance to higher slopes of marital contentment, couples frequently begin a slow and exorable slide into disappointment and mediocrity. One recent study reveals that nine out of ten marriages are filled with dissatisfaction in every dimension of the relationship. And so there's deception among Christian people. First of all, that there is such thing as a perfect marriage that is going to fulfill all of your ultimate hopes of a marriage. It's a mirage, not a marriage. It's elusive to you. And that's common among everyone who's ever been married. Modern Christians have a tremendous interest in the subject of marriage and counseling, but that is actually a sign of disease, not of health. It's like a terminal cancer patient looking for alternative treatment solutions. As the divorce rate within the Christian church is the exact same as that with outside, outside the church, 50%, 50%. And one reason is because we are discontent with what God has given us. And we're asking Christian counselors in other books besides the book to give me another way out. There must be another way. Give me some practical solutions that just quite frankly are a little more up my alley than what I'll find in this leatherback book. Among the experts, there's a fascination with a paint-by-numbers approach to family living. The experts ignore the Bible or strip verses out of the Bible and use them in a way that has little to do with the spirit and what he intended in the sacred meaning of the text. This plethora of biblical instruction has not revolutionized the Christian family of our time. Savage goes on to say, are we packaging marital advice too lightly, ready for instant consumption, filled with creative techniques and clever applications, but avoiding the more difficult task of nurturing unions at the deeper level of the hearts? Recently in a Q&A session, Chad and I were on a panel and we were giving advice to marital problems and we just kept bringing it back to the gospel, bringing it back to the gospel. And another person on the board kept saying, well, that's the theological aspect of it. Let me give you the practical steps. And if you've been part of this church long, we know that theology shapes our orthopraxy. Theology will shape correct living. And it's not the same with my marriage and your marriage or your marriage and his marriage and his marriage. Way different. The only way that we can know what women want is not by watching Mel Gibson figure it out. It's by spending time with the creator and being led by the spirit as we're filled with the spirit. My wife hates flowers. She's a CPA accountant. You're wasting money on something that's going to sit on my desk, probably has bugs in it. It's going to bring those into my house and it's like dead and rotting and the water's going to get all dirty in like a day and a half. There are other ways to woo me, she says. We want to look at nurturing unions at the deeper level of the heart. We're going to allow the Lord to search us in the next, wait for it, 14 weeks perhaps. That's okay, that's good, we need that, right? We need him to nurture our fallen, broken hearts and apply the healing work of the gospel, redeeming our marriages and our home. And we're going to get into parenting and being parented kids and even being employees and employers as Paul then goes into that in the book of Ephesians. But so often we just flip here and there in the scriptures and think that the Bible gives us certain techniques that really just reflect pharisaical morality when the Lord really has more of a redemptive revelation for us. Lord, bring us back to the essential truth, the essential truth that the gospel 
And the Spirit of God can transform a wrecked home and make it a healthy home again. Paul Tripp wrote, We could argue to the degree, the degree that every portion of the Bible tells us things about God, about ourselves, about life in this present world, and about the nature of the human struggle and the divine solution. Listen to this. To that, to that degree, every passage in the Bible is a marriage passage. Every passage in the Bible is a marriage passage. And so what we we'll look at, before we look at what the Christian family does, as we go to Genesis, what is the Christian family? What the Christian family is? What makes it significant? Three answers for you this morning. First of all, marriage or family is the sovereign creation of the Lord God. It's the sovereign creation of the Lord God. That must be the starting point in our marriages. We don't begin with man and we don't begin with woman. We begin with God just like Genesis begins with God. In the beginning, God. Marriage was not designed by an old sociologist or a male-dominated culture seeking to oppress women. It's a creation from the Lord God. And Piper put it so well that the most foundational thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that it's God's doing. And the most ultimate thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that it's for God's glory. So foundationally, it's God's doing, and ultimately, it's for his glory. Therefore, he never gives us permission to redefine it or discard it the way that suits us or the way that we see fit. Marriage and family exists ultimately for him. And until you understand your family within that context, you're going to walk with a limp. Your marriage will have a canker. Until you understand that everything about your home is for him and for his glory, your family will have a virus. And I mean everything. It all needs to exist for his glory and to reflect his goodness in the gospel. The tie that binds is his glory. It is a rope that brings us to the upward ascent beyond even our loftiest conceptions. Leslie Newbigin, living from 1909 to 1998, was a Church of Scotland missionary in, in India He wrote, in a mutual relationship between two human beings, we know that it can be sustained only if both acknowledge something that has authority over them and if each trusts the other to acknowledge this. Foundationally, it's God's design. Ultimately, it's for God's glory. Now, if you have your Bibles, flip there to Genesis chapter 1 where we have the account of creation. And in this account, we see God exercising his sovereignty. He's going to say, let there be lights. And then he's going to see the lights and that it was good. He's going to take pleasure from his creation. He's going to say, it's good. Look at Genesis 1, 9 through 10. You know, Adam and Lauren are thinking, they're thinking, this sounds a lot like my marriage, uh, my wedding sermon. For the record, the longest wedding sermon in history. (laughs) legendary. I was out moving cows at the Papanaws and there's a girl riding with us and she's like, wait a minute, I know you. You were at the Barney's wedding. Happened to be the year I did a marriage series. My bad. Just going to preach the whole thing there. Okay. And you know what? They're still married. Two kids. Okay. And they're sitting by each other. Verses 9 and 10, then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. 
Verse 11, then God said, let the earth bring forth grass and the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so, and the earth brought forth grass and the herb that yields seed according to its kind and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 16, then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to its kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth and each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. This is poetry, as if you care, because Prineville loves poetry. I think you do. Basically, there's a pattern. God speaks, it comes into existence, and as a result, he is satisfied. Now look at verse 31. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So you've got the pinnacle of creation, and some have called it divine fanfare. Before he creates it, he shows his consideration in making it. And then he goes and does something that almost jeopardizes his glory and that he's going to declare he will share his image with something that he's creating. That's almost taking a ride into the danger zone. I'm going to make something that's going to represent me on this world. And what could go wrong? Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image. By the way, who's us? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Perfect community and perfect fellowship with each other before time began. One God, three persons. Look it up. Okay, just kidding. Come to school of ministry. We'll teach it. But God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish and the birds and the cattle. Pardon me as I paraphrase over creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the earth. And so the broad view of God's creation is that they were male and female. They were created in his image. They were to carry out what's called the created mandate. His image will be revealed in men and women, and then they are to go and show the world his image, who he is. But notice it's male and female. It's not complete without both. Savage says to the eyes of the maker whose mark of glory had been left on every cell in a billion galaxies, creation is exceptionally good. Good because it trumpets in its every dimension the radiance of his glory. Creation, it seems, could not be better. And yet, one deficiency remains. Anyone who's been reading the first chapter seems caught off guard by a negative assessment when the creator says, there's something not good here. And what's that? It is not good, verse 18, that man should be alone. And behold, it was good. 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 And hold on a minute. Something is not good. It is not good that man would be alone. And so then God takes a step which has been said formed the capstone of, creator, of the creator's handiwork and provides an even greater, greater outburst of divine glory. He creates woman. The capstone of his divine handiwork. All of this is good, but here's something that's not good. It's not good that man be alone. Matthew Henry said, an instance of the creator's care of man 
and his fatherly concern for his comfort is shown. God cares. Not only is God the boss and says, hey, I'm giving you a job to go tend the garden and to promulgate my glory throughout the world, but he's also a father and he cares about his creation satisfaction. Now, I want you to know that I'm aware that there are single people here. There are divorced people here. There are people who are past the age of childbearing and they may not have a family. And this is good for every single one of us. We're building a foundation that we are going to be teaching our friends as we make disciples. We're going to be teaching our children these things. We're going to be raising up men and women in our, in our communities to know the divine foundation of God's design for God's glory. And we want people to know that, hey, this is all true. Even if you're single, there's significance to singleness. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's not a less than valuable estate, but Paul tells us it's a very high estate. Jesus, the ultimate man, was single. And we're told in the new heaven, we won't be married. What he's saying is, it's not a good idea for a person to be solitary, isolated. And marriage is only one way of addressing this. I was so blessed by Matthew Henry this week. He said, if there was just one man in the world, what a melancholy man must he needs be? I like talking like that. Must he needs be. Perfect solitude would turn paradise into a desert and a palace into a dungeon. When we were Adam in our best state in this world, we were in need of someone else's help. We were needing to be members of one another, as the church tells us. Now, the father says, we need to make him a helper comparable to him. Don't get tripped up on that. Don't get offended. What are you offended with? Helper or comparable? Or helper comparable? Don't be offended by that. We see in the Proverbs and in the Psalms that David cries out, God, be my helper and be my shield. It's a wonderful role that God himself even plays to his creation that he is over. And so, making the helper, Genesis 2.19, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Does that seem a little out of place? It's not good that man be alone. I'm going to make him a helper and then, you know, and, you know, like, It's in place. One guy called it, God takes Adam through a zoological exercise <laughs> to realize that, look at all of these things have a significant other. And none of these things are significant enough or rather comparable, similar enough to you to be the helper, the help meet that I know as a creator you need someone who's fitting for you. Even though Adam knew that there was an upper world of angels and there was a lower world of brutes, none of them were in the same nature and rank. And so to not have someone with the same nature was to be utterly alone. Ray Ortland says, God did not immediately create the helper. Instead, God paraded the animals before the man for him to name them. Why? Because the man did not yet see the problem with his aloneness. And so God translated the man's objective aloneness into a feeling of personal loneliness by setting him to this task. In serving God, the man encountered his own need. This is so because the task of naming the animals entailed more than slapping an arbitrary label on each beast. The task required the man to consider each animal thoughtfully so that its name was appropriate to its particular nature. 
anteater. That's one that I would have named, you know. Um, humu, humu, nuku, nuku, apu, a'a. That's not one that I would have named. But anteater's right up my alley. Cow, definitely. In this exercise, it began, Ortland continues, it began to dawn on the man. By the way, I have no original thoughts in my head. I read what Ortland says, and then I go, moo, and then I keep reading. So I apologize. It began to dawn on the man that there was no creature in the garden that shared his nature. He discovered not only his own unique superiority over the, superiority over the beasts, as when he was done naming him, he slapped it on the butt and said, yeah! And then the next one came on through. I'm the boss here. The privilege of naming them in itself implied his superiority. He also discovered his own solitude in the world. He wanted to be like, hey, did you see what I just named that? Nobody cares. <laughs> we may surmise that an aching longing welled up within the man for the companionship of another creature on his level. And so Genesis 2.21 says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Adam sleeps sweetly as one who cast all his care on the Lord. He was able to say, Jehovah Jireh is my provider. And I can rest in him to provide in his perfect timing, in his perfect way. What a word for us. Maybe you who are waiting for a spouse or waiting for a spouse for a daughter or for a son. Just rest in the Lord. That's what Paul tells the single people in Corinth. Just rest. Be content with where you're at. And trust the Lord to bring and to work in his own timing. Notice he was in a pre-sin state and God took heed to make sure he didn't feel any pain. Alistair Begg said, making a helper suitable in order to build a woman, which is actually the verb in Hebrew, God built a woman. God has to make man incomplete only to make him complete in receiving back what was taken out of him. The female is built in separate from her true origin or context. So she will return home to where and what she should be in her understanding of her femininity in light of the reality of masculinity, whether that is true in her singleness or in her marriage. And any view that sidesteps that is incomplete in the light of what the Bible says. Marriage is God's doing because he personally took the dignity of being the first Steve Martin, the first father of the bride. Nobody? It's like 1990s, almost everyone was here for that. He's the first father of the bride. It was his doing. And God creates a new thing to be a help meet for the man. Henry said back in the 1500s, not so much even the woman being the help, but the seed of the woman being the help. Henry was able to even look beyond what was happening to see it would be through the seed of the woman that man would get his truest help through Jesus Christ. Going to need to provide for his deepest need, salvation from sin. So Adam wakes up. He sees her. In verse 23, Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Ortland continues, And so God performs the first surgical operation. Imagine the scene. As the last of the beast plods off with its new name, the man turns away with a trace of perplexity and sorrow in his eyes. And God says, son, I want you to lie down. Now close your eyes and sleep. 
The man falls into a deep slumber and the creator goes to work, opening the man's side, removing a rib, closing the wound and building the woman. There she stands, perfectly gorgeous and uniquely suited for the man's need. The Lord says to her, daughter, I want you to go stand over there. I'll come for you in a moment. She obeys. Then God touches the man and says, wake up now, son. I have one last creature for you to name. I'd like to know what you think of this one. And God leads Eve out to Adam, who greets her with rhapsodic relief. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The first recorded words of man in the scripture are worship to God. They're worship to God. And they express the joy in receiving the gift of the first woman. Saying this is the first creature out of all of the creatures who meets my need as a companion. She alone is my equal, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, my very flesh. I identify with her. I love her. I will call her woman for she came out of man. And this shows us that woman was not his rival, but his partner. Not threatened because of her equality with himself, but the only one capable of fulfilling his longing within. Adam's poetry here captures their equality and yet also their distinction, that there are some differences. And the distinction is this. Man in the Hebrew is ish. Woman is isha. Literally, in a sense, she-man. Equality, Adam's saying, she's from my body. She has my rib. We go together. She's comparable to me as God had designed with intention, suitable to me. But there are differences programmed in, hardwired in design, different but complementary functions, different by design. It's obvious that man and woman are not identical. It's an observation I made all on my own and it's worth the price of admission here this morning. <laughs> not going to get into all the physiology of how man and woman are different by design, but a two-year-old can figure that out. Different by design that there might be harmony. So everything may fit in order that it may fit. Creation meets its climax in the creation of man. Man's preeminence is established over the created order. Scientific duty of Adam reveals his need for a mate. Adam wasn't content just being a Dr. Doolittle in the jungle book. And woman was created on account of man's loneliness. And at the end of this creation account, woman is a suitable, equal, yet distinct and different helper for man. And incidentally, man is also a suitable helper for woman. Helper doesn't equal subordination. Priority doesn't equal superiority. But God, who is a God of order, created with order, saying there must be order. And the priority in the order doesn't equal inferiority or superiority. It just speaks of role. It just speaks of function. Equality, yet distinction. There's distinction in Adam's poem and his worship song. In keeping with intention that Adam was in a distinct function in relationship to her. There's equality in his song that Adam and Eve were in every way spiritual equals. Eve was an image bearer of God also. She stood face to face with Adam. And yet there were distinctions. While they were equal in status before God, their functions were not interchangeable. The equality is stressed that Eve was created from Adam. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 will stress that as well. There's a distinct function in relationship to Adam that he was created for Adam, from Adam and for Adam. As 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9 says, for man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And why are we giving all of this attention to this detail now? It's so that as we work through the series and we work our way to Ephesians chapter 5, that we will appreciate God's design in dividing labor prior to sin being introduced into this world. These are creation mandates that are pre-fall, pre-abusive husbands. Roles of submission are within the Trinity itself. Something that sticks with me from Ephesians chapter 5 is that Jesus voluntarily submitted himself to God the Father, even though they both were God. They both have the value of God. They both have authority. And yet Jesus voluntarily submitted to the role of God the Father. There's a bit of a spoiler alert in the, when we get into chapter 5, but it's got a ring in our hearts now too. The difficulty within these areas is a consequence of the fall. But the proper use is creation mandate. Men and women need each other. Husbands and wives need each other. Anything that undermines that reality is unhelpful and untrue. Leadership and role are not the problems. Abusive leadership and roles are the problems. Genesis is not a rebuttal to Darwinianism. And because of our creation accounts today, because of the account of Adam and Eve, homosexuality is excluded. Two men do not work by design. And the argument is, well, we both love each other. We're both helpful. He'll be my helpmeet. I'll be his. Wouldn't you rather have two loving men in a relationship than an unloving heterosexual relationship? In that argument, we are breaking down one truth to try to justify another untruth. Homosexuality is the ultimate rebellion against the creator. For man to say, God, you didn't make us. You didn't clearly make us different by design. We reject your idea of harmony. We reject your idea of wholeness. We reject your ideas of family. And we reject your ideas of femininity and masculinity. And we are expressing these in multiple fashions. It goes clear back to the same fall of, didn't God say this? No, he didn't really say this. Let's do it our way instead. Our way is better. And ultimately, that's every sin. It's just that homosexuality is almost the pinnacle of idolatry in exalting ourselves before God. Adam could not find a suitable helper among the animals, so bestiality is excluded. Because God created just one woman for Adam, monogamy is God's original intention. As originally designed, Adam and Eve are the standard to every relationship, including equality of worth and clear distinction of function. Now, I remember this from my pre-marriage counseling note, and I cut and pasted it over and then I found almost every preacher I read or listened to says it. So it must be good. Henry wrote, the woman was made out of a rib out of the side of Adam. Not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him. Under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. And so Adam is able to say, this one corresponds to me more than all the others paraded in front of me. Different by design and different for harmony. Adam was the figure of him who was to come. This is gospel-centered, guys. 
For out of the side of Christ, who Paul says is the second Adam, his spouse, the church, was formed. And when he, Jesus, slept the sleep, the deep sleep of death upon the cross, in order to which his side was opened, and out thereof came blood and water, blood to purchase his church, and water to purify it to himself. Paul will say it in Ephesians 5. He'll say, this is all a big mystery, but I'm not even talking about marriage right now. I'm talking about Jesus and his love sacrificially for the church. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or cleave or hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God's care in creation Joined to his wife as he's severed from his parents. You have the severing of one of the strongest human bonds to a relationship that demands the highest loyalty, holding fast to his wife, cleaving to his wife. It's an exclusivity that is symbolized, celebrated, and refreshed in a sexual relationship, joined to his wife. What these words point to is that marriage is a sacred covenant rooted in covenant commitments that stand against every storm as long as we both shall live. Ephesians will quote this verse. Jesus will quote this verse affirming its validity that in creation God made two out of one and in marriage God makes one out of two just as in our salvation. We'll have the worship team come back up. The end of our chapter tells us that Adam and Eve were in the garden. They were naked and they were unashamed. That seems foreign, doesn't it? I'm not the only one ashamed? Okay. I am the only one ashamed. Is it hot in here? Okay. I got confidence. Okay. They were naked and they were unashamed. But then something happened to break that. In all of this beauty and glory, they're given a job, they're given a task, and they're just told one thing not to do. There's the joke on Facebook with all of the memes, you know, and it's the, you had one job. <laughs> Don't do that. And, and they did that. They ate of the fruit of the garden. Eve taking a place of leadership out of the role, out of the function, led the husband. As she was deceived by Satan, she ate, leading Adam into eating, and the fall took place. Now, New Testament is that Adam was the one held responsible. Adam is the one that sinned, Romans tells us. The first Adam. The responsibility was with Adam. The buck stopped with the buck, it's been said. He wasn't leading. He wasn't protecting. And in the fall, in de-godding God as they were tempted to do so, they realized they were naked. Genesis 3, 7 says that, that the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves coverings. The whole thing got flipped upside down. The helper didn't help, the leader didn't lead, and the curse came. And when they were judged by the righteous judge in Genesis three sixteen to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception 
In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So the judgment and the curse there intentionally given by God for the woman is pain and childbirth and the desire to lead the husband. It's an unjust subjugation as the husband will then rule over her. It speaks of part of the fall will be, there will always be this battle in marriages that the wife will try to rule over the husband, but the husband will respond with a tyrannical dictatorship. Both things are a fallen condition that the men and the women are always going to have. You're laughing because it's true, I know. There's a reason Kimmy's not sitting by Dustin today. (laughs) He's in my core group, he likes it when I call him out. We'll pray for you later. Those are two fallen conditions that we will always need to go to battle with in the power of the Spirit. And then we have Adam being told, because you've heeded the voice of your wife, because you've heeded the voice of your wife, and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. And toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it'll bring forth and you'll eat the herb of the field and the sweat of your face you'll eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken. For dust you are and dust you shall return. And so pain and childbirth, unjust subjugation, wrongful domination, sweat and labor, the fall, the curse. But there's good news in the midst of it. God came and was seeking them. Genesis 3 tells us that the Lord was walking in the garden and he was seeking them. He was looking for them. In the cool of the day, Adam and his wife heard the Lord, so they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord says, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? Is he saying that to you today? Because ultimately, we're not talking about marriage. We're talking about Jesus and his love for the church and his building of the church and his design of the church. Are you lost? Are you a prodigal today? We sang the song, Oh, wanderer, come home. Are you wandering? Are you away from his will? Are you away from his design? Adam, where are you? Insert your name. He knows your name. And he's saying, where are you? The gospel is that he seeks. The gospel is that he will judge injustice. He's not only a loving God. He's also a just God, a righteous God. Cannot be in the presence of sin. He's got to deal with sin. And so he judges the sin. He judges the serpent. He judges the woman. He judges the man. But in the midst of it all, he's not caught off guard. He's got a plan from the beginning. And in Genesis 3.15, if you were here on Good Friday, you know that it's called the Proto-Evangelion or the first gospel. It's the first good news. And it's right there as they're caught red-handed, having a curse laid upon them. And he says, I got a plan to crush the serpent's head. And it'll be through Eve's son. And in the process, he will be bruised and he will be bludgeoned. But he will crush the serpent's head. It's the gospel. It's the plan of redemption. And I'm not even talking about marriage. I'm talking about Jesus. And so as we close in worship today, what we need to do is realize there's something wrong. Maybe you're here today and, you know, you've been very gracious to sit through today. There's a lot of things that go against current worldview and cultural worldview as we present a biblical worldview. You've been gracious to sit and listen, but you don't even need a Bible to be able to look at the world right now and know there's something broken and there's something wrong. And here is a sensible solution. We have a designer who with great forethought and care and love and honor 
created man and woman in such an honorable way that we are made in his image, designed to like reflect him to the world. We were given everything. And we were just told one thing, don't do it. Don't go over there. To be obedient to that is to walk in a trusting relationship with God. All of you is more than enough for all of me. I don't need that fruit. To go to the fruit and to partake of it is to say, there's something wrong with God. He doesn't know what's best for me. He he doesn't want me to experience all there is to experience. I know what you're doing. You're wrong. And the moment we, through our federal head, partook of that fruit... All hell broke loose throughout all of history. And the confusion that we have right now in our society of gender and gender roles and marriage and who can marry who and how long can they be married and how many can they marry? It's because we've gone away from the rule of first mention where marriage is first designed by a loving creator designed for a purpose, not ultimately our happiness or our protection or our provision or our pleasure, but for the glory of God, ultimately. And many of those wonderful things take place as our joy is directly related to God's glory. And so as we close, God would just ask us to recognize There's something broken in my marriage, in my home. And we're going to see a lot of brokenness over the next few weeks. But God hasn't left us to ourselves to just wallow in the mire. He had a plan from the beginning to pursue you and to seek you out. And even today, week one, the foundation of marriage, he's saying, Adam, where are you? Where are you guys? I'm seeking you. I'm pursuing you. I've got great plans for your marriage. I've got great plans for your future. I've got great plans for your kids. And it's only going to be realized through the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, who came and dealt with the biggest problem, the sin issue. You see, God in the garden provided a covering for Adam and Eve. He had to kill an animal. It's the first killing. It's the first death. As skins then provided a covering over of their sin. And that is a picture of the future. The lamb that would be slain to cover over and take away the sins of the world. And so as we close, we can close our Bibles and The Lord has brought you here for this first week of this series to see the hope that is found in Jesus. Behold, he makes all things new. He's going to bring us back through the gospel to as close as we can possible get to a a pre-fall state until we're literally in the presence of God face to face with him. He wants to do that. And as he does that in our church, our kids are going to see it. Our community is going to see it. Our world is going to see it. Let's recognize where we've gone wrong. Let's recognize where we've messed it up. Let's recognize where we've stepped outside of our design role and our design function. Let's come back this morning to saying, God, you're right. You're right. Maybe you're here this morning and for the first time, you would just receive by faith the grace of God. His free provision to wash over your sins with his blood. To have your sins forgiven and forgotten to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit 
the third person of the Godhead. You'll be given a new heart and a new mind and you'll want to follow God. Just ask for that today. Ask for the Spirit of God to come and change your heart, to give you new life. Ask Jesus to forgive your sins and to cleanse your sins. And He wants to set you on this path of being a follower of His. And on that path, He's going to be redeeming your relationships with your husband, with your wife, with your kids, with your coworkers, with your employees. He's going to be setting things right again as we live a gospel-centered family. Let's pray this out. Let's pray that out. Let's bring this all before him as we close in this last song.